This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Hey, uh, Anthony, I feel like you're missing a part of your name. There's a new part of your name that uh, you've, you've just earned, and I think it's a really special one. And that is your doctor, Anthony Lacanina, now. You've, you've made it. You've ascended. I did it, everyone. Raise those bottles to the ceiling. Pop them. Pop the champagne if you got it. It's official. I am now, I'm good. Actually, let me, wait, hold on. Hey, everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Dr. Anthony Lacanina. That sounds much better. Much, much Ooh, better. Damn. And, and I'm still I'm, just Matt Davis. I'm not a doctor yeah. yet. <laughs> you're working on it though, man, right? Yeah, you know, there's some, there's some, there's some obstacles in the way, but you know, life is a windy path, right? I know. Uh, you're, I have no doubt that we will soon be Dr. Brethren on this podcast. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. I sh- you f- tell me when it's happening. I will uh, fly out there. Whoa. Uh, because, because guess what? The Brain Matters crew has been separated. Oh, yeah. I have left sunny, beautiful Austin, Texas, and I am now in chilly, frigid New York City. Yeah. You're, and I'm loving it. You're in the concrete jungle. Totally different change of scenery for you there. Um, but, uh, you know. New year, new you. Like it's it's almost a new year, and everything's everything's new about you. So, this is. I, know. I think this is a. I think this can be a wonderful opportunity. There's no, you know, if there's one thing that New York City lacks is doctors, and uh, <laughs> we just they just need more doctors. And there was a Craigslist ad, and you responded, and now you're a doctor that's ready to serve the city. I was I was listed on Amazon and because Amazon just moved their headquarters to Queens, somebody clicked on the button. I had no choice. I had to come up here yeah, to was- fulfill the doctor shortage. But so yeah, I mean, lots of things have changed. Uh, I got a new name. I'm in a new place. But you know, one thing that hasn't changed, Matt. What's that, Anthony? That's good episodes of Brain Matters, and this is definitely one of them. Ooh, you got another. Great episode for us. You took the lead on this interview, and uh, I assume that you talked to somebody interesting, fascinating, and it was a great conversation. So can you please tell me who it was, what it was about, and uh, how you felt about it? Yeah. uh, So yeah, of course. It was a great conversation uh, that I had with uh, Dr. Roderick McKinnon, who is a professor at Rockefeller University as well as the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And Dr. McKinnon has been studying how electrical signals are transduced in neurons. And he's interested in this from the level of of ion channels. And ion channels, we've talked about these in previous episodes, but they are proteins that are embedded in the neuron, and they sort of function as the, the gateway or the highway in between the inside and the outside of neurons. And they're really interesting because they are the thing that changes the electrical properties of those neurons uh, because there are these charged particles that go through these channels. And that causes your neurons to fire and they cause them to not fire. And so they govern a lot of the activity in our brain. For this reason, Dr. McKinnon has been really interested in how do they open, how do they close, and also what do they look like? 
yeah, so they're extraordinarily small to the naked eye, but they're they're complicated proteins, right? They're they're kind of big, they're bulky, they're they're multiple subunits, and they have moving parts. So I'd imagine it's a challenge to deduce what the structure of these things are, and structure is important. Exactly. Like you mentioned, they're incredibly small to the naked eye, but they're actually very complicated structures. And so understanding how they open and close has been a mystery because we they are really challenging to visualize. And the reason they're so difficult is that these proteins exist within the lipid bilayer, which is a fatty component that is, is basically the outside of our cells. And they sit in between them and getting proteins out of that fat is, is actually just really difficult. And for that reason, we don't know what a lot of them look like. But Dr. McKinnon has embarked on a career long effort to try to isolate them and then do these complicated techniques. One of them is known as x-ray crystallography that allows you to see what these uh, very small molecules look like and they they create these very beautiful three-dimensional images of you know what they look like you can actually use those images to understand how they move or what what are, what are the constraining factors of, of how they could move or how even the ions can pass through them and we talked a little bit about this in the episode because he's, he's very well known for this yeah, I've seen I've seen some of those these ion channel structure images in papers and it's actually kind of cool you can find certain representations of them that you can get a 3D effect by the sort of magic eyes crossing crossing your eyes type of thing. They'll they'll have two images next to each other that are slight, slightly rotated or different colors or however do it and you can actually see this structure in 3D on like a printed paper. So, that's kind of a fun little thing I would recommend looking that up um just to see just to see that cool 3d effect yeah and so dr mckinnon also we at the end of the episode we talked about a new ish technique that has really revolutionized the field which is known as cryo em or cryo electron microscopy and this technique we go into it a little bit in the episode uh, so i'm not going to talk about it now but it uh, allows you to uh, much more easily isolate these proteins. And uh, so this has actually caused us to be able to visualize so many more ion channels and uh, other proteins. And so he's been using that actually currently in some of his work at the moment. Yeah, and uh, I feel like we should also mention that the, the contributions Dr. McKinnon has made to the field have been so profound, significant, and impactful that he was awarded the Nobel Prize, one of the the best honors you can get as a scientist. So that's super exciting for us to uh, have our first Nobel Prize winner on the on the podcast. Yeah, this is a first. Uh, yeah, he he uh, won the Nobel Prize two thousand three. Shared it with uh, Peter Argy. Ar- I might I don't know. I might be mispronouncing that. Peter Argy. Sorry, but this is a first for Brain Matters. Uh, first Nobel Prize winning scientist on the pod. Cue, cue the air horn. I'll, I'll insert a little air horn right here. Congrats to us. We did it, guys. We couldn't have done it without y'all. So We're done. This oh, is our last episode. We're quitting the podcast. It's over. Um, but because that, that horn got me so excited and jazzed up um, that I can cannot contain my excitement anymore, and I'm ready for the episode. Um, well, so can we get, get to, to it? it? Let's get to it. And... Uh, you know, you know what to do.
perk them cochlea. That's right. All right, let's do it. start uh by um if we could maybe ask like what are the questions that your research has been sort of the biggest picture questions that your research if there's a thread that you've been like trying to answer um you know i had a discussion earlier today uh about this and um somebody asked me well what how do i how do i decide what to do and um the truth is there are some general things I'm interested in. I really love biology and I love biochemistry and chemistry. There are general things I'm interested in, but usually what I, I don't have a big, giant, long-term grand plan. I have some questions I'm working on. Uh, they're usually, you know, depending on who you ask, they say, oh, that's a big question, or who you ask, oh, that's a little trivial question. But the thing about the question is it's something I'm interested in that excites me. And there are usually just a few things I'm thinking about, a um, few problems, and we could get into the specifics later. But then what happens is um, I find that if you just pay very close attention to the data, uh, new questions come up. So it's kind of like a random walk, and some of uh, things arise that are very interesting, and I pursue those, and things that don't interest me so much, I don't pursue those. So I'm very much guided by, you know, what kind of data are coming in and what I see and something that really intrigues me. Okay. So let me give an example. A big question I had early on, so big in my, not meaning it was it's big important, but meaning uh, in, your it, mind, it, it was in my mind it was the thing that interested me. Let's go, that's my definition of big. It's, it's not big. It's just, okay, yeah. the, the thing that excited me, let's call that, was um, that got me excited before was, you know, how does selectivity of ions work? You know, sodium and potassium are very close to each other in size. So how does a potassium channel, for example, tell the difference between potassium and sodium and let only it go through, especially when the potassium is bigger and the sodium smaller? How does it do that? So that question intrigued me, and that question led me from electrophysiology to structure techniques uh, to answer it. But on the way then, I mean, looking at many different things, for example, coming up finding some working with people I work with. Uh, we found some channel structures, and we began to understand the selectivity question. But then there were other aspects of the channels that started to sort of raise, you know, as, well, how does this open and close? And how does this, how does this sense voltage? Or how does a ligand bind this to open it? And that seemed interested. Or And then uh, this other question popped up from outside the field, my own lab, but, you know, how does how do mechanical forces open certain channels? So I got very interested in this question about, okay, chemical energy can open them. 
um, electrical energy in terms of membrane voltage can open and close them? How does mechanical stuff open them? So then I, we start pursuing some mechanical openings and we start to develop a, an understanding of that. doesn't mean we understand it fully, but it means we're getting a plausible hypothesis for how it works. We get structures of different conformations. And uh, then we start looking carefully at this mechanosensitivity and the mechanosensitivity starts to say, Wow, it's amazing, actually. It can go so fast, and I mean, it's so exquisitely sensitive. And then you start to wonder, based on these sort of very physical kind of measurements, what's biology using this for? So, of course, you go to the literature and you read and you say, well, this channel is supposed to be in sensory nerve endings. And you, so you start to read about, you say, okay, well, but, but, okay, it's supposed to be in sensory nerve endings, but I don't see any pictures of that. Where is it? So let's go look for it. And you make antibodies against this channel and you go into a mouse and you look and, you find out it's not in sensory nerve endings, it's in some other thing, you know, called a node of Rambier, and then you say, oh, what's it doing there? Why does it? And so then you start, you know, how do you study the function of a node of Rambier? And so you, we find ourselves doing this like 1960s physiology that's really hard to do, and you wonder, and, and that's one of my big questions, big meaning, really interesting to me today. But if I follow it all the way back on its path, what it really was is just sort of following the next obvious, intriguing question about mm -hmm. the thing you're looking on. Yeah. And then, then people say, oh, wow, that's really cool. How'd you get to, how'd you view that to study? Well, no, I just kind of, kind of followed, followed the next Thing that seemed really interesting about the work and just followed the gut what like yeah. feeling of what seemed very yeah. very much yeah 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 and i i was also t explaining to somebody that maybe the same person who asked me about how do i decide what to do uh, i said that um i asked had, had they ever read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um do you ever read it i've actually never okay. i know so much about it's, it but uh, i'm gonna yeah I'm it's, gonna it's, disappoint it's, all the nerds out nerds okay out there. <laughs> so it's really worth reading i've heard it's, it's really it's really worth reading so there's a guy in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy a character named wonko the sane uh, he's a scientist and um so douglas adams the author conceived of this guy and uh wonko the sane uh, is a dolphin expert he uh, lives on a beach in a house that's inside out, um, and he puts a tele his telephone in a in a uh, room that he's not allowed to go in. It's a lot of things about Wonko that I liked, uh, and he believes in angels. But anyway, Wonko says uh, he said, "Oh, he's asked why does he call himself Wonko the Sane?" And he says, "Well, the reason I call myself by my childhood name—that was my childhood name—the reason I." call myself that is to remind myself that a scientist should always think like a child um, and see see first think later then test but always see first mm -hmm. uh, because then you'll only see what you're looking for so I try to I used to hang that on my office door um, and it got lost when we moved about a year ago but I'll put another one up but it's really my it's really a very cool quote because it sort of sort of captures my my feeling about science and how I get to what I'm doing. I always want to think very naively about things. And, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing. And, and in fact, Wonka the Sane says, the other thing the other thing about a scientist, scientists should never be afraid to, to make a fool of themselves because um, basically because you shouldn't be afraid of that. Because uh, it's unknown? It's yeah, like just, just be think like a child. And I like to try to... You know, the lab is my playground, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and uh, and um, so I just sort of 
which is really to admit that, you know, maybe I'm, you know, I don't have grand, grand plans on things. I just like to, I like to follow my, follow my curiosity. It seems like and, I wanted to, I had two questions in mind. One is that you said, I've been trying to like understand things and it's like every question just leads to even more amazing questions. And yeah, it's like, yeah. it seems like it, it would just, it never will end and it will mm. be, it, it, but it's beautiful and amazing process. But I guess maybe the question I want to get at will be directed to your work. If, if you said your philosophy is about just see first, it seems that your work on seeing these incredibly small molecules is yeah. kind of a... Yeah, seems like it fits well yeah. with that. So you yeah. kept that in mind, right? Um, and could you tell then maybe our audience um, what you're looking at? What are these small molecules that a lot of your work has focused on, and why seeing them is so important, or why you think that's an important thing? Yeah. Well, first, as molecules go, some people would say they're pretty big because you know, you know, this methane <laughs> that's a small molecule, <laughs> oxygen <laughs> O2 that's a small molecule. Some of these are getting pretty big, almost a megadalton, um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I one aspect. So I, 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 I just, I, I'm amazed at how how these things evolve that accomplish the job they do. How did you take 20 amino acids and um, and build all these different? How did evolution build all these different machines that do what they do? It's really quite amazing, actually. So it fascinates me. In in a sense, it's they're very much the problems I'm working on it much easier than the problem that you're probably working on and that uh, most real neuroscientists work on very hard problems because, you know, the brain is a very complex thing and even a part of the brain is very complex and even one which you'd call a tiny part of the brain, like the if you want to call the elementary unit the cell, to me that's already like massive, right? So yeah. I'm working on something that I think is much easier. It's, um, you know, it's, it is a molecule or maybe a complex of molecules that you know, that um, can be understood and ultimately in terms of, you know, chemical bonds and atomic structure and what the thing does and how it changes its shape in response to um, environmental stimuli that you can get some control on. So it's kind of an easier problem I work on. Yeah. In fact, these are I, the ion channels, right? These are yeah. the ion channels. Or actually anybody who studies, you know, something down at single molecular level is much more, it's a much simpler problem than studying how a whole cell works, right? But then I think that what fascinates me about stuff like whole cells is that if you take the components of a virus, right, the few proteins that make a capsid and you throw them in a, the right concentration in some salt solution, they make viruses. That's pretty interesting. So this self-assembly thing has to be occurring everywhere in life. So what that means in principle is that if I could take the components of a cell and put them, there might be some ordering in which you have to order them, but put them in, but ultimately things should self-assemble, right? Mm. I'm not saying that it has to be this way, but I think it has to be this way. Yeah. I mean, because there's not some grand conductor, you know, in development making us what we are. I mean, everything is through local interactions. Everything ultimately is chemistry. Mm. So it fascinates me to think that how if we understand molecules very well, that we can build bigger and bigger things through the same rules of self-assembly that have evolved to permit organisms like, well, any life form to exist. Yeah. So, yeah. so I kind of, even though I work way down in, say, maybe the, what you could call the basement of biology, and that is at the single molecule level, I still think it's pretty cool to imagine that if we understand things well enough, uh, we could put things together and get them to self-assemble to make, you know, 
maybe first pieces of cell, maybe little organelles or little little compartments like spines or you know um, little elements of the cell, and then ultimately maybe we can even put them together and make cells. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, yeah, I find that it's really fascinating that when you try to ask big questions that neuroscience is getting at, such as the biggest one, what is, how does the brain work? What is right. it? And then it's like, okay, it's made up of these individual cells. How does that work? It all leads down to this thing. It's like these cells do things because energy flows in a way, because, you know, physics, it, it right. almost always just boils down to that a fundamental level. Do you, did you land there kind of and went like, I really want to put this together because then what it will allow me to do is understand how something as remarkable as an organism does all these interactions are basically these things flipping open and closing and there's like when i think about it it, it, it's 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 really difficult for me to conceptualize all these channels opening and closing to make like a bird flying or something like yeah no that's not the answer is no okay i didn't i didn't land where i am to understand that because i think i can't yeah but i (laughs) i I landed where i am because i was really fascinated by these little tiny phenomenon Mm -hmm. so when i make this comment about maybe someday people can put things together and get self-assembly even to something like life. I don't mean to say that, hey, I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to do that, although it would be really cool, but that's not why I'm doing. I have no you know, belief that the right way to understand something as complicated as the brain is to start at the single molecules. Maybe you can't do that. I don't know. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I was absolutely fascinated by, well, one, how sort of the electrical, it, it just interested me that living things have an electrical basis. And I, that just seems interesting to me. And I wanted to understand it. And the other thing is when I first saw channels, you know, being recorded, you know, you watch a channel, single channel, undergoing its fluctuations so that when it opens, it's conducting, and when it's closed, it's not. And you look at it, and you realize right in front of your eyes that what's underlying that is a conformational change of a single molecule, and you're actually looking at it happen. You're watching fluctuations about an equilibrium through the electrical signal that it makes. To me, that was just very exciting to be able to see that. Yes. And it made me want to understand, you know, how do those, how does that work? How does that thermal fluctuation work? And what what's making that signal? And why is it a particular ion going through? And, you know, so I was simply fascinated by the little tiny details, yeah. not any grand picture of, hey, this is the way to understand the brain. Um, I never thought about understanding the brain. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's not offended in any way. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Like, yeah. I mean, again, I think you're, you're probably highlighting what uh, I have. I think like science is thinking of a question and then thinking of all the possibilities of how to answer it, defi- like not definitively, but satisfactory, I guess. Yeah. Enough, yeah. So. Um, I wonder if, so you, I know you were trained in, in, um, in, uh, like, uh, electrophysiology and then moved into structure at some point, yeah. um, as a part of your career. Can you tell us maybe about that swap and maybe like some of the things now that that's also a big part of your uh, career? That's well, that was yeah. really, in a way, it's, it's, it's right in line with what I already said about just following the next question. Okay, yeah. It was a matter of, yes, I, so I, when I got my foot into science uh, working as a postdoc with Chris Miller, which was a, a beautiful place to work because uh, he's, a, he's a very good man and a very good scientist, he, um, that was to, to make electrical recordings, and, and that's, that's what I first learned. And that's where I got fascinated in the question of selectivity. And then, you know, 
genes were cloned underlying the potassium channels right around that time. So I thought, oh, that's a great opportunity to take those genes and express them and make mutations and try to figure out how selectivity works. And it didn't take me long to realize that I could alter selectivity with mutations, but I couldn't understand how it worked. And it was very clear you need to see the chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so that just led next to saying, like, how do you see chemistry? Well, the techniques are available, you know, NMR, X-ray crystallography. And at that time, it was clear X-ray crystallography would be, have the best chance of letting me look at an ion channel, like a potassium channel. So I just went and pursued that. Again, it was really not any grand vision. It was more just, okay, what's the next thing you got to do to solve the problem? Okay. And so so that was it. Could you tell us then what, maybe we could just talk a little bit about selectivity, what that really means, and then why maybe seeing it using, getting down to that level would help resolve that type of yeah. question. Yeah, well, what it really means is that, you know, you have... Uh, a sodium ion that has a, a radius that's, you know, around 0.95 angstroms uh, and a potassium ion that has a radius of about 1.3 angstroms, uh, so it's bigger. <clears throat> you have a potassium channel and potassium goes whizzing through it in some of them near the diffusion limit and sodium just doesn't go through. You can't measure it. Mm. Um, and you know, people who made the best measurements of the ratio, depending on how you measure it, it's a thousand or 10,000 times better for potassium than sodium. How does that work? And, um, you know, I think the, the, to tell the truth at the time, I, you know, read a lot of chemistry literature and I realized that probably chemists a long time ago figured out the principle by making uh, crown ethers and cryptans that could selectively bind alkali metal cations like sodium and potassium and rubidium. And they could get selectivity by putting a, a, basically a cage of oxygens that were spaced at the right size to, to coordinate it. So, you know, it seemed rather evident that a protein must have done something similar. But that raised an interesting conundrum, and that was that generally if you make a binding site that binds a ligand with very selectively, generally that means it's quite high affinity because affinity and selectivity, you can see how they can be tied in together because the way you get you know, imagine you have a binding site and then you have a ligand at one and ligand two. The way you can select the ligand one over ligand two is to bind it more tightly, right? Mm. Okay. So, fit, yeah. yeah. So the, how did the channel get a near diffusion limit with um, high selectivity? That that was an element of it that the protein that evolution must have solved that the chemists weren't concerned with. They were concerned with how do we, can we make little molecules that can bind alkaline metal ions selectively. So so I knew that I had to see what it looks like. And, and the solution was very beautiful, actually, that when finally got to see it, because each little binding site in the potassium selectivity filter looked like one of those cryptans that chemists had made really? with the oxygens. Very beautiful. Uh, very beautiful. Um, you know, it's not me, not my work that's beautiful. It's nature that's beautiful when you see it. Uh, but what's interesting is unlike what the chemist made, there was a little queue of them. There were four binding sites right in a row, and ions tend to bind up next to each other. Turns out, on average, two bind in those four sites. And when you have them binding, the ions binding near each other, because they have a charge, they repel each other. Mm -hmm. So you can see those sites individually a very high affinity. But actually, when you have multiple binding, they tend to lower each other's affinity without losing the selectivity because the selectivity is based on size. Mm -hmm. So you end up getting the ions actually going through very quickly. Yeah. So, so they it's rank very, and file in a way and then they sort yeah, of and they repel block. each other. Yeah. They okay. repel each other. You see? So it's 
really a beautiful solution. Yeah, and that was ins- did you you got inspiration from that seeing that uh, the chemists uh, ca- oxygen caging mechanism. Well, as once a way. seeing it, yeah. you could realize the selectivity size selectivity. Okay. That is, so again, you'd say, well, why doesn't the smaller sodium work? Well, what the other when we say selectivity, okay, it means potassium goes through and sodium doesn't. But where is sodium when it's not going through? It's hydrated by water. So you have potassium. Potassium's hydrated by water. So look at it this way. Sodium is smaller. In the water, oxygens can gather around the sodium and coordinate it very well. It's not as constrained in size. So a sodium can either be in water or in the binding site. But the binding site's actually too big for sodium. It kind of, you could say, it rattles around in there. It doesn't, it's not as it's not as solvated as well by the protein it is, is by water. So sodium will par- stay in the water. Mm-hmm. Potassium, on the other hand, the protein has made a binding site that is just the size for potassium. So it's kind of an energetic wash in going from the water to the binding site. The solvation is essentially as good. So the principle, that's the same principle that the chemists had figured out, in a sense, for um, for the binding sites of alkali metal ions that is occurring in the potassium channel. But then the queuing principle was new, that you had four in a row. So the and you get multiple that, yeah. binding in there and repelling each other, and then the structure showed four in a row with multiple ions binding to get repulsion. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then you could go on and test the ideas with other fancier experiments. That and that's what that I, I and people in, uh, who worked with me did for many years after to sort of test ideas. Yeah, and then then many computational scientists came in and, and tested ideas too, um, based on the structures uh, to sort of build a better understanding. Wonderful. Yeah. I, we we could spend so long. I would love to talk about yeah. just some of the, the the things that came from there, but due to kind of our time constraints, I'd love to maybe go to now. Yeah. And yeah. there's just a new technology that's kind of come online that I'd like yeah. to talk about, and it's really it seems like revolutionized or made things so much easier. And if you could talk about like stuff that you've done and maybe your excitement or well, that. there are there are a lot of directions. There are things that I'm excited about. Yes, this so the technology that I mentioned earlier that um, before this interview was the cryo electron microscopy. Uh, and that's developed by others, but it's been amazing. That field has sort of transformed structural biology, um, uh, and um, uh, many scientists who develop the techniques that we're using and others are using. So it's been really fantastic. Um, and you know, the resolutions we can get are appropriate for a lot of the questions of major conformational changes. So this interest that I mentioned earlier about how does how does electrical energy uh, you know, uh, energy stored in a transmembrane field or energy from ligand binding, the free en- chemical free energy, or uh, mechanical forces. How are those transmitted onto channels? Yeah, this technique is really fantastic for looking at the different shapes and understanding how the channels respond to the stimuli in their environment. Um, I'm also, you know, I, in my heart, very much a biologist and am interested in what really these channels are doing in cells. So um, we go hunting to find out. I mean, believe it or not, you'd think we'd you'd think the only question about channels though after sort of the biophysics of their structure and how they work and we should understand their biology. But actually our understanding of the biology for many channels is really very limited. There are about 80 potassium, close to 80 potassium channels, and many of them we don't even know which cells or which parts of cells they're expressed in. So it's very interesting to ask how, how they're working in cells. Mm-hmm. And I have this um, feeling that, uh, that I think pretty much has to be right, that 
that structure at the level between molecular structure and whole cellular structure is very important. So the spatial organization of where things are has to be important. I mean, think about it. We're looking at this large scale of a whole organism. We have particular structure, right? We have one head, two arms, two legs. We have a form, right, that fulfills a function we do. When you look, you know, down at cells, you see beautiful structures and subcellular organelles that are structured uh, for to achieve particular function. When you then jump all the way down to the molecular scale, you see beautiful structures that are the little machines that are doing things at the molecular level. But there's a gap in between sort of the subcellular structure and the molecular machines, like where, you know, what are the little bumps and where are the receptors and channels on the surface of a neuron, for example? And why, where, how does that localization give rise to what those channels do in a cell? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's sort of an unknown right now for most channels and receptors, and it interests me. You, you mentioned this story, you were talking about those nodes of Ranvier and like yeah. the, something yeah. that was like exciting you today. Yeah. Um, maybe could we talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, we could talk about it. It's Those are experiments yeah. that I'm doing right now yeah. in the lab and uh, because I want to know what a particular channel in the node of Ranvier is doing that we didn't know was there before. In fact, that's connected to hunting down where channels are and turns out there's a certain kind that showed up in the node of Ranvier and it has properties that make us wonder why is it there? And yeah. so, you know, to study the node of Ranvier, we're having to learn, relearn a technique that was used in the 60s and 70s. Why did it go um, out of uh, just people didn't? The truth you know. is, well, I think a mixture of reasons. One is it's so hard to do, actually. It's yeah. really hard to isolate single mammalian nerve fibers. Uh, and the other is, you know, the invention of the patch clamp uh, recording. It's a very good method for studying channel and electrical properties of cells, but not not for the node of Rambier. And I think most people felt that the action potential is pretty much understood. And maybe that's true. And it's sort of like, okay, it propagates through. It's a one mm -hmm. or a zero. It goes through or not. Let's not worry about it. Yeah. But actually, we have reason to worry about it. Not worry, but to say, hey, there might be a fact fascinating mechanism working yeah. here these are we, these little, these these little segments of a neuron that yeah, the allows, little the little yeah. gaps in the gaps in the myelin and myelinated yeah. fibers and if my yeah. recollection from undergraduate was that they allow for fast conductance that's of, right. of, of things that's that, right. like at long distances that's right so. there's saltatory conduction i mean in a nutshell you don't have to put channels all along all along the fiber you just put them in those place in, in the nodes and, and then you put myelin around in the internode region and myelin changes the capacitance in such a way that you don't have to move as much charge across the membrane to propagate the nerve signal. Yeah. So it's a more energetically efficient way of doing it and it propagates quickly. Yeah, and you said um, you found these ones that are these mechanical activated ones. So yeah. they're these ones that instead of the the, the, the voltage-sensitive channels in your body, you know, yeah. open and closed due to changes in, in yeah. membrane, but these are like yeah. a physical pressure or something yeah. like that. something. Yes, so we're trying to understand that, and that's yeah. just in a stage of... The reason I'm excited about it is we don't understand it yeah. in, at all, but we're wondering why is it there, and so it intrigues me. It's amazing that you just said there's like 80 of them, 80 potassium channels just in that family. Family and we don't yeah. even know where they're where they are. Some of them, but most of them, we don't know where yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of work to do. It seems like there's still. a lot. <laughs> lo there's a lot to do. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to do. So maybe I could wonder. This might even like really tail back something I maybe wanted to ask like early on, which is that what do you have a general kind of philosophy of of doing science? I guess I guess maybe even in a more general sense, how do you like do a daily kind of routine or to 
uh, think about questions and be scientific? I don't know. You know, I'm always working. I'm always distracted by the problem we're working on. I usually don't have a grand plan. I guess I'd answer the question this way. I think it's important, at least for me, and I think it's something for people to think about, uh, that um, what we do in science, don't ask what is important and what am I supposed to be doing. Ask what fascinates me and what makes me excited. Because, And there are two reasons I say that. If you approach science that way, then you will do a better job at whatever you do because you're having fun doing it. And two, we're actually not smart enough to know what's important. So a lot of science is funded based on what people think is important. But if you look at the history of science, a lot of the greatest discoveries came from not not supporting what somebody came in with a grand plan because something was important, but they were just following up on a little phenomenon that they thought was interesting. And then it turned out that led to something really good, like a medical treatment. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the original 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 yeah. aim. So I, I think it's very much important for young scientists to, you know, this is what I do. So and it's, therefore, it's the same advice I'd give to anyone. And that is, don't pick what you do based on what is supposed to be important. Pick what you want to do based on what you think is fascinating and what you'll have fun doing. Because when you get up in the morning, you want to get excited about going to work. And you'll be most excited about going to work if you're pursuing something that simply fascinates you because it's fascinating to you. Mm -hmm. So that's my philosophy about what I do. Wonderful. And uh, so far it's worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so far it's worked. No, and I say that very seriously. Maybe someday I'll say, look, McKinnon, you're, you know, you're too much of a, you know, you're too much of a, I don't know, you're just dreaming about, you know, things that are interesting, but they're important things to be done. So we're going to take your funding away. And, <laughs> and if they do that, then I'll just go paddle my kayak somewhere. Oh, yeah. But until then, I'm going to, you know, spend a lot of my time doing science and, said, yeah. and less time ca paddling my kayak. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm sure that wouldn't be terrible, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could you talk about uh, just uh, at the end? We usually like to talk about um, you know interests and hobbies that you have outside of science that you like to put your uh, energy into. So kayaking yeah. might, is one. Yeah. Well, I really like the outdoors. Okay. I like um, I like uh, you know it's funny. I live in New York City, but I don't like big cities at all. Yeah. I'm there because I really love where I work at Rockefeller University. Um, but I get out of the city when I, you know, Rockefeller is right on the edge of New York City, right on the edge of Manhattan. So I just stay on the edge and, uh, and, uh, just jump in your kayak in the river and then, well, just, not yeah. quite because it's a big drop off into the East River, but okay. I have a way to get my kayak in the water familiar. not too far from the city. And, um, and so, yeah, I like to go kayaking. I like to go hiking. I like to be in the outdoors. Nice. Um, and because of that, I'm very much an environmentalist and, uh, you know, I care very much about, the world we live in um, for the environmental um, thing. I think it's the biggest issue we have facing us um, more than any of the medical problems we work on. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I wonder if you, maybe you'll find yourself contributing to that in some way, potentially. You, you, yeah. never, you never know. I don't you know. We'll <laughs> see. We'll see. Um, yeah. We're running. It's like I wish I could continue talking, but I don't want to make you late for dinner tonight. So, yeah. Rod, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay. Soon. Thanks very much. It. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for talking to us. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> that 
That's all for today's episode. You can check out more of what we do at our website, brainpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or at Brain Podcast on Twitter. The music on today's episode was by The Caretaker from the album Everywhere at the End of Time. The music on today's episode was by The Caretaker from the album Everywhere at the End of Time. This album is being released in stages, and five of the six stages are currently available. The music is an exploration into dementia, with each stage representing further progression into this condition. The fourth stage was one of my favorite listens this year. I highly recommend you give it a listen, uh, which you can do at thecaretaker.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.